1947, some Bedouin shepherds near the Dead Sea in Israel were exploring caves in the area searching for gold um, or hidden treasure. And they threw a rock in one cave with a narrow entrance and they heard something shatter. It was late, so they came back a few days later to explore the cave. And they explored the cave and they found jugs, but the jugs, to their disappointment, did not have any gold or treasure inside. Rather, the jugs had scrolls inside, surrounded by, um, the, were covered in cloth, um, scrolls of animal hide um, were found inside. And so they removed seven scrolls from the jugs. Sometime later, they brought these scrolls, hoping to make at least a little bit of money. They assumed that it was of value. They were ancient scrolls. And so they brought them to an antiquities dealer in Bethlehem, which was an Arab city, town, to see if they could sell it um, and make some money. Um, over time, negotiations, debates, initial debates of, with, among amateur antiquities dealers, if they were legitimate, four scrolls ended up getting sold to a Greek Orthodox monastery in Jerusalem called St. Mark's. And the other three soul, scrolls were sold to Elazar Sukenik, who was an archaeologist and professor at Hebrew University. Some two decades later, the late 1960s, the monastery, or at least the leader of the monastery, perhaps without the monastery's permission, um, smuggled the scrolls into the United States with attempting to sell the scrolls in the United States to raise money for the monastery. And they sold the scrolls to a private buyer after some um, major institutions turned them down, thinking they were fakes. They sold the scrolls to a private buyer um, who they believed was a Christian living, um, I think, in New Hampshire, um, for $250,000, which was wow. a significant That's sum a back then. Yeah. Significant sum back then, 19, late 1960s. Um, so turned out that they were secretly purchased by Yigal Yadin using a front buyer. Yigal Yadin was Elazar Sukenik's son and also a noted archaeologist in his own right, often considered Israel's greatest archaeologist and historian. Um, and he managed to come across the sale of, discover the sale of these scrolls um, and uh, managed to secretly buy them. So all seven of those scrolls ended up being purchased by um, Israel, by uh, Israelis and Hebrew University. Um, in the 1950s, once the knowledge of these scrolls became public, um, and where they came from became pu public, the Bedouins, along with archaeologists, um, searched dozens of caves in the area looking for more scrolls. And altogether, throughout the late 1940s and 1950s, they found scrolls in 11 different caves. There were a number of complete or partial scrolls, large, you know, that had large scrolls, large scrolls. There were also lost, many of them were fragments of scrolls that maybe only had some large fragments, some were very, very tiny fragments of scrolls um, that had only a few words on them. 
And this was particularly true in one cave known as the caves were numbered. Cave number four appears to have been once a very, very large library. And in this cave, the, a library that somehow, whether due to the elements or animals, somehow the library was totally destroyed. And so in this cave, they found over 15,000 fragments of scrolls, that uh, fragments that scholars over the years have pieced together and believe come are part of 500 different scrolls, some of which have over a thousand fragments of the same scroll, some of which have only a handful of fragments. Altogether from these 11 caves, there are caves, there are tens of thousands of fragments that were found and pieced together. And so over the years, um, the scholars believe that these are pieces of almost a thousand different books from these 11 caves. Some of them are entire books or almost entire books that were very well preserved. Many of them are partial books. Some are just books that we have many, many different frag fragments of. Some are easy to identify because they're books that we know from other sources. We have the entire text of the book from other sources. Some are originals that we don't have from anywhere else, which would be then very, very hard to piece together. So these pieces have been purchased by collections and universities around the world. Initially, they were discovered by Bedouins and um, sold to various different people, various different organizations, various different archaeologists. Um, the vast, vast majority of these fragments that have been these of these scrolls and fragments that have been found were purchased by Israel. Where some were purchased by Israel, um, some were um, made the property uh, were ca conquered, captured by Israel when Israel captured East Jerusalem. Were found in East Jerusalem, um, and uh, but Israel over the years, uh, the vast, vast majority of them are found in Israel. Almost all of them are found in a special um, section of the Israel Heritage Museum in the Givat Ram neighborhood of Jerusalem in a special building called Hechel HaSefer, or the Shrine of the Book, special building built to house these and a number of other ancient biblical or biblically related scrolls. Real quick, mm -hmm. when you say So these are not books like we have today on paper. Um, the scrolls, the, and they're also not kind of we have today books that are bound, you know, kind of cut into nice squares and bound, and you could turn the pages. These are scrolls. They didn't have books then. They only had scrolls. Uh, some, most, most of the scrolls are, are animal um, leather. Um, some of them are papyrus, which is... Um, Paper, which is kind of a, a paper or early paper. Um, some of them, one of them is even, we have a scroll, a copper scroll that was essentially etched into the copper. Um, so they, they were made of different things, but they're scrolls. Is it like the Torah? Like what's written on? What's written? I'm going to get to that. So what are on these scrolls? So there are many, many different documents on these different sea scrolls, these Dead Sea scrolls. Um, a big portion of them, in fact, the largest portion of them, about 40% of them, are books of the Tanakh. The Tanakh are our holy scriptures, for including the, um, 
but for the Torah itself and the other 19 holy books that we have. Um, the, in fact, we have multiple copies or fragments of multiple copies of each book of Tanakh with the exception of the book of Esther. Now, we don't know why the book of Esther is not there. Was it purposefully or was there a reason or did it just so happen that that part we just never found the book of Esther? Um, some, we, you know, some, some of the other books we only have very, very little of as well. Um, so there's uh, unlikely there's any significance to that. Um, the most complete scroll that we have is an almost complete scroll of the book of Isaiah. Um, it has some parts are kind of illegible or um, fallen off, but it's almost an entire scroll of Isaiah that was also preserved so well that it could be opened and closed, although it's over 2,000 years old. Um, and that's found in Hechel HaSefer, in the shrine of the book in Jerusalem. Um, there's actually a copy of it. They made an identical copy of it that's on display. Um, the originals are not on display over there. They're preserved. Um, in, um, so uh, now uh, some books of Tanakh are, um, I, uh, and so the, the, it has almost all the books of Tanakh. Now some of the books of Tanakh that um, they have are identical or almost identical to the words of Tanakh that we have. Um, but many of them have notable differences from our own Tanakh, a minority, but many of them do have notable differences from our own Tanakh. Um, there are also translations of Tanakh into Aramaic, which we spoke about last week, um, already there was, was common back then. Um, there are also some commentaries on the books of our scriptures, on the books of Tanakh. Uh, there are also a number of books that are called um, Apocrypha, or Apocrypha, which is, um, or in Hebrew, Svarim Chitzoniim, which are biblical era books that are not found in Tanakh. So we have the books, the Bendish, the books of the Torah, another 19 holy books, but the Apocrypha are books that are from that period, Jewish books from that period, but not in not included in Tanakh. Um, we have that from other sources. The Christian Bible includes most of these biblical era books um, that are not found in Tanakh, such as the book of um, Hanoch, Enoch, um, the book of the wisdom of Ben Sira, um, which is kind of a book of Proverbs, the book of Tuvia, um, the book of Yovel, or the Jubilee book. These are all books that are found um, in at least some Bibles, the Catholic Bible, not some other Bibles, um, but uh, they're not part of Tanakh, were found over there. They're, we know books from that era that existed in that era. They also found a number of ancient tefillin, and mezuzah's tefillin, of course, the boxes that Jewish men wear um, daily, um, are, were found, as well as mezuzah's. Um, there are also a number of original, original documents from that era, just documenting various things. Um, there's also some um, commentaries. And then there's a number of other interesting books. They include um, books of community rules, books of historical accounts. Among those other interesting books, um, well, I'll get to exactly what those other interesting books are in a moment, which will help us understand who wrote them. Uh, but 
reading these um, uh, or deciphering these various scrolls has been quite a project. There's been a number of different organizations dedicated to deciphering these scrolls over the years. There was a lot of politics in it for many years. Um, and uh, today, though, and for a long time, the books were not, the scrolls were not pu publicly available. Today, um, the um, Israel Heritage Museum has a website. Um, I think it's deadseascrolls.org, if I'm not mistaken. I should have written it down. But um, and that where um, photographs of the entirety of the Dead Sea Scroll collection is available, and anyone can look at them and um, look at any particular scroll. And if you want to be an amateur scholar and try to read the scrolls and decipher them, you can do so yourself because they're all, they're all today now publicly available. Yes? Okay. Are they called the Dead Sea Scrolls because they were found in the Dead Sea? And is it because the salt in the Dead Sea so they didn't drown? No, they were not found in the Dead Sea. They were found in caves. Um, the caves, um, we'll, soon, we'll soon talk about where exactly. There's found caves. They're near the city of Jericho, um, near the northern, the, near the northwestern coast, kind of the northern part of the west side of the Dead Sea, just a mile or two from the Dead Sea. But they're not in the Dead Sea, no. Um, did the salty air around the Dead Sea help preserve them? Very likely. Obviously. Very likely. Um, they, were, they were well kept inside jugs, um, surrounded by, protected by cloths, at least the whole scrolls, which is why, probably why they survived. Um, most of the scrolls did not survive, right? It's only a very small number that actually, you know, really survived and, you know, were in decent condition. Most of them were not in good condition at all. And, the, the, you know, because, you know, this area was inhabited, not just this area, but all over Israel was inhabited for, since ancient times. And because a lot of caves in the area, uh, we found not just over there in the Dead Sea, uh, by the Dead Sea, but in a number of in Masada, in a number of other areas, um, we have found various, you know, scrolls and things. Um, and the Dead Sea since then, it, it's the early first, but it's not the only um, kind of Second Temple era discovery that we've found in Israel, um, even of scrolls. Um, and so, yeah, a lot seems to have been preserved, at least somewhat. Yes, yes. So we know when they were written, they're from, and we'll talk, we'll, we know when they were written both from descriptions in the scrolls themselves and the um, and carbon dating and dating the area around the nearby settlement. Um, and so uh, they appear to have been written up to the destruction of the Second Temple, which would be around the year 70. Um, and they appear to have been written from the earliest from about 300 BC. So they hid these scrolls in the caves just to protect them from... How did they get to the caves? That's an excellent question, which we're going to soon get, get to when we discuss who wrote it. Um, there are various theories as to how they got there. Um, clearly, it was a significant library. I mean, a library of 500 <coughs> scrolls, um, or close to 1,000 scrolls between all the um, caves. Uh, and they may not have all been directly you know, connected and placed at the same time in each cave. Um, but it, clearly, it's a significant library. Um, it probably came from different places, but where, where exactly did it come from? And, and that, that's the big question, right? That historians and scholars have been 
kind of trying to figure out for the last 75 years. Or so more now, 75 years, I guess it is now. So, the, so of the non-biblical and biblical era documents, uh, which were just essentially copies, there's a number of other documents that tell us a lot about the people who wrote them. There is um, one of the um, intact scrolls that survived was, is called the Temple Scroll. It's a scroll that gives us the rules for service in the temple. Something that's both mentioned in the Torah in great detail and something that is later in our oral tradition as it was written down in the Mishnah and the Talmud is written in great detail. Um, there is also a scroll of community rules, um, rules of how the community lived. There are commentaries, but not commentaries in the classical sense, but more where the writer, commentaries on books of Tanakh, are reading into the prophecies events that happened to them, or current events. And there's a number of those, most notably, there's a commentary that, one of the, those that were really preserved is a commentary on the book of Chavakuk that speaks of this persecuted book. And perhaps the most notable book, um, um, scroll is pieces, at least, of what's called the Damascus Scroll. Now, we didn't find an entire Damascus Scroll um, as it's known in the dead, among the Dead Sea Scrolls. Rather, we found fragments of what we think were at least nine copies of the Damascus Scroll among these Dead Sea Scrolls. But we do have another source of the Damascus Scroll from a medieval source of the Damascus Scroll that survived in another fascinating archaeological, or fascinating find um, that maybe deserves its own class, the Cairo Geniza. Um, and in the Cairo Geniza, which is uh, also a very, very important um, find, but it's from medieval times, um, well, there's a scroll that was written maybe a thousand years ago called the Damascus Scroll, and it tells a story, essentially, of this persecuted community that fled Jerusalem from this wicked priest that persecuted them, and they were led by this wicked Kohen, high priest, and they were led by this, um, what they call teacher of wisdom, and how they travel to Damascus, and they um, travel around, and it's this whole story of this group. And we found an, an, a number of fragments of this same scroll and the same story, and we didn't know who they were, but a number of fragments, are f a number of copies were found among the Dead Sea Scrolls. Um, so the assumption is then, well, then maybe this group are the authors and the owners of these scrolls, right? Since they have a number of copies of this interesting story. So the caves themselves are near a late second temple village known as Qumran, um, which has been excavated. It's just south of Jericho. Um, in fact, some of the caves that Qumran is kind of in a valley um, that has these very steep slopes on either side. And um, some of the caves that where the scrolls were found are actually in those slopes right next to the settlement of Qumran. Um, Qumran, just from the way it's built with large, a large kind of community center, um, appears to have been kind of this communal living system. And so um, it's widely believed that there was kind of this commune or this group that 
lived together in Qumran, and they owned or deposited many of, if not all, the various scrolls that were found among the Dead Sea Scrolls. The library, the large library in K4 was probably theirs. Maybe many of the other scrolls um, were theirs as well. Um, some of them clearly were, uh, apparently were not, or at least our scholars think were not, and may have been kind of, they had other things with them, or they may have had, in other words, other scrolls from other groups with them, or they may have had, um, or maybe other people, for whatever reason, deposited um, these scrolls in these um, caves. The settlement of Qumran is thought to have been destroyed in the war with the Romans that led to the destruction of the Second Temple, so in the year 70. Um, so that was probably the last the scrolls were ever used or seen. Nobody ever really went after that. Israel kind of remained desolate pretty continuously since then. And so nobody probably ever you know, saw those scrolls ever since. Um, and they're probably sitting since then. Now the rules, both the laws that are found in the Temple Scroll and other laws that are found in various different, there's a number of different books of halachot, of laws, um, ten are similar to Judaism as we know it, but there's some very notable differences. In, in, as well as the beliefs of this group are similar to Judaism as we know it, but there are also some very noticeable differences. So clearly, the authors of these scrolls, and presumably the people, assuming that the authors are the people who lived in Qumran, um, the authors of these scroll, scrolls were Jewish, but were not normative Jews. In fact, the very fact that these Jews had scrolls with laws and commentary itself was outside of normative Judaism. We've mentioned many times that when the Torah was given, it was given as an oral Torah, these oral teachings that were taught to Moses, and passed down orally for, well, for over 1,500 years, from generation to generation. And the written Torah was written down, the Torah itself, the five books of Moses, was a cryptic document documenting the oral law. The rest of Scripture, the other 19 books of Scripture, mentioned some of the laws in passing, repeatedly mentioned the teachings of Moses and fulfilling the teachings of Moses. They'll mention other laws in passing, but they don't detail laws. They tell stories, history, inspirational lessons, um, instructions from the prophets to repent and to change your ways, uh, predictions of the future, but they don't tell us laws. The laws were all oral, were all passed down orally. It wasn't until the, about the year 200, after the destruction of the Second Temple, and after the fall of the Second Rebellion, led by Shimon Bar Kuziba, which we once did a class on, and only and after increased Roman persecution around the year 200, that the Sanhedrin, the Supreme Council of Judaism, led by Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi, made the decision to begin to write down the oral tradition. And the first work of the oral tradition written was the Mishnah. And I hope to do a class one day, I think we have it already down, um, on the writing of the oral tradition and how it happened. But these scrolls were all written, without a doubt, before it was accepted among Jews to write down the oral tradition. So if they had halachot, laws, and commentary, which would have also been considered oral tradition, and even translations, 
were not considered acceptable to write down at the, during this period. If these were all written down, clearly this was a group that was outside of mainstream Judaism who would not have written any of these things. So who, who were these people? So in the early days when the scrolls were first discovered in the late 1940s, um, Many of well, the first seven scrolls to be discovered, first three and then later the other four um, came into Jewish control. Uh, but many of the early scrolls, and in fact the entire library found in K4, were held by the Jordanians. The Jordanians um, placed most of them in a museum in East Jerusalem, which is how Israel later got, got it after the Six-Day War. Um, and now the Jordanians... Um, the Jordanians... Um, uh, built allowed for archaeologists to kind of or, or scholars to uh, read the scrolls and try to piece together. Remember the K4 had fifteen thousand pieces, um, fragments um, from what we believe today is over five hundred scrolls, um, and so they had this whole team of archaeologists they put together to try to decipher these fragments, put them together, kind of like pieces of a jigsaw puzzle where you're missing most of the pieces. So. The Jordanians, though, were very anti-Israel, anti-Semitic. They only allowed um, non-Jews to, they were very concerned that Jews would use the scrolls, which were clearly written by Jews, as evidence for their rights to the land of Israel. And so they did not allow any Jews or anyone who they thought might have Jewish leanings to Jewish sympathies to be involved in the... Um, reading these scrolls. And so they assembled a group, but the group were mostly Christians, uh, were all Christians, but not just Christians, they weren't even secular scholars, they were mostly religious Christian scholars. And mostly anti-Semites, this is back in a time today, um, Christians, at least in this country and in Europe, tend to be philo-Semites and very pro-Jews. This is a time right up, you know, 1950s, when most Christians were anti-Semitic, especially in Europe, uh, and even here in the United States. And these were mostly anti-Semites or Christians. Um, later, many of them were relieved of their duties after um, it became clear that they were anti-Semitic, much later when Israel took over. Uh, but, the, um, but these were definitely Christian scholars and, you know, Chris, uh, who were you know, Christian believers. And so these scholars, by and large, assumed that the inhabitants of Qumran and the authors of these scrolls and owners of these scrolls were early Christians. Now, Christianity didn't really exist in the year 70. Christianity really only began as a movement in the second century. It didn't really exist. But they were what they believed proto-Christians. In other words, after the kind of uh, after the death of the founder of Christianity, the early kind of the, his, their, his early disciples, there were very small sects, perhaps, of Christian followers until it really grew into a large religion. And so they thought they assumed that these people in Qumran were original Christian, original Christians, and um, their teacher of wisdom that they referred to in the Damascus Scroll would be the founder of Christianity, and um, and these were somehow kind of the early underpinnings of Christianity. Um, yes? So we would have thought these were written in 200, year 200, normally, based on our history. You're saying they were written 400 years earlier. 
And is that because of the carbon testing? Is that the sole reason? Both because of carbon dating and because of the dating of the settlement in Qumran, um, which the settlement in Qumran, um, we believe, was destroyed by the Romans. We could date it, you know, the dating pottery, dating coins that we found there. Um, we're pretty sure that it ended um, in the year 70. So the carbon dating is... Maybe not as accurate. Regardless, we know pretty much for certain that these were not normative Jews. We can assume that this was not a norm. This was a break off of regular normative Judaism at the time. This was not normative Judaism. The sects in Judaism mostly ended with the destruction of the Second Temple. So, um, and by the second century, they weren't really around. There were there was Jews and Christians. Uh, but there wasn't much more, by the, definitely by the 3rd century. So we, we're pretty certain they existed beforehand. Uh, who were they? That's the question, right? So th th it was the early scholars thought they were Christians. That argument has largely been debunked. There's no reference whatsoever to Christianity or to any kind of unique Christian stories or beliefs in any of these scrolls. And so it's been largely debunked that they probably were not early Christians. So who were they? So the widely held view is that they were a group called the Essenes. Who are the Essenes? So the Essenes are a group described by Josephus and two other second century writers, um, uh, Pliny and Philo, um, who describe this kind of group that broke off from other kind of normal Jewish groups and lived in communal groups far from other communities and practiced this mystical um, and um, ascetic form of Judaism that, um, you know, that there many of them were celibate, many of them kept, which interestingly, the graves in Qumran are mostly almost all male. Um, the, um, uh, and they kind of, uh, they, uh, they rejected comforts uh, of life and kind of lived in these communes, uh, practicing their own forms of Judaism. Uh, Joseph, jo Josephus actually describes the Essenes as living near the Dead Sea, so the location seems to match. Now, other than Josephus's short accounts and later accounts of Pliny the Elder and um, Philo, who lived after there were no more Essenes, they kind of were just... Um, either repeating what Josephus said or repeating maybe what they heard. Um, we know very, very little else about them. Independent of the Dead Sea Scrolls, um, we know just about nothing more than Josephus's couple paragraphs of description about them. Um, so it's really hard to know if they are the Essenes or not. Now, if they are, then we know a lot about them because we have all these scrolls that tell us all about them. Um, so it's really hard to know, but that's the widely assumed because kind of because they lived in a commune, because they were kind of a break off from normative Judaism, because we know the Essenes lived near the Dead Sea. Um, so a lot of things seem to match. So that's why it's widely assumed that they were this group called the Essenes. They sound kind of like monks almost. Almost like monks, yeah, living kind of in their own communes. Keeping a library. Yes. Seems to go with yeah. that whole vibe. So yeah, so they could have been this kind of group, and they lived with... Um, Unique laws of um, Tumah, um, which is ritual purity, Jews during Second Temple period. Um, a big part of Judaism is these laws of Tumah. We once did a class about it, um, which really was um, 
impacted everything you touched and everything you ate and everything you used and who you associated with. I mean, really impacted your life a lot. Uh, but they had a unique and very expansive laws of Tumah. And they have a whole book where they describe that we found scroll describing their laws of Tumah much, much more kind of detailed than you know, what normative Jews would have had at the time. Did they find a mikvah They did. They did. They found mikvahs all over Israel, yes. But that would have been part of normative Judaism everywhere as part of the rules of Tumah. So... Lauren Schiffman, who's a professor at New York University and one of the foremost experts in the Dead Sea Scrolls, if not the foremost expert in Dead Sea Scrolls today, has argued that they may not be the Essenes, um, but we can identify them as a sub-Sadducee sect. Now, on the Essenes themselves, the Essenes themselves, while mentioned by Josephus, there's a bit of a challenge with the Essenes because Outside of Josephus and these two other records of them, there really are no other records of the Essenes, which is strange. No early records describe them. We have many Jewish oral traditions that were later written down that describe the Sadducees, Bithuses. There were many different cults and groups at the time, the Menim, the heretics, um, which were kind of what we'd call today proto-Christians or various groups that kind of later became Christianity. So there are many groups that are from late Second Temple period. We know there were many different kind of Jewish cults and different sects that arose. And many of them are described in Jewish sources. Many of them are described in early Christian sources from the same period. There's no reference whatsoever to these, these Essenes. Um, and the question is why? And some scholars even ask whether the Essenes even existed, or maybe they were the very minor sect that most people didn't even know about that Josephus found interesting. Or maybe he made it up. We know he made up a lot of other stuff. Um, so anyway, so that itself is a question whether they even did exist. Uh, although it's widely accepted that they did. Uh, but Lawrence Schiffman has, uh, Professor Schiffman has um, suggested that and shown that they really are a sub-Sadducee sect. Now, the Sadducees or Tzidukim were a very large break-off of normative Judaism at the time. Um, the Josephus describes norm, the leaders of normative Judaism as Pharisees or Prushim. Um, they were kind of the scholars um, and the leaders, though the common folk kind of followed the leadership of the Prushim, of what the, what's called the Pharisees in, in English. Um, the Sadducees kind of this break-off group that were mostly made up of Kohanim and aristocrats of wealthier people. They, it's not clear how large they were. They did rise to power during the Hasmonean period when one Hasmonean, when one Hasmonean king, Hyrcanus, converted to Sadducean and became a Sadducee. Um, and so they did rise to power and appeared to have had some power during the Hasmonean period um, and, uh, were, uh, and because they had power, that, that made them very prominent. Um, but we know a lot about them and a similar sect called the Bythuses. So our Jewish scripture, our Jewish traditions, our oral traditions, as they were written down sometime later in the Mishnah and Brightus, um, from the, in the, uh, around the year 200, um, tell us quite a bit about the Sadducees. Uh, mostly telling us why they're wrong. But in telling us why they were wrong and what they got wrong, um, we know quite a bit about them. 
Um, in fact, there were a lot of rules that the sages, what we call the sages, the Pharisees, made to counter Sadducean influence. And, to, uh, and so that tells us a lot about their influence and what they were trying to do. So um, Professor Schiffman has shown that many of the rules in the Temple Scroll and in other laws that um, found in the, among these Dead Sea Scrolls are identical to uh, what we know as Sadducean halacha or Sadducean laws. Um, and so since they would have been identical to the Sadducean laws, it does make sense that they were Sadducees who were um, essentially a group we know not much about them. If the Dead Sea sect was a probably a unique break-off sect, I don't think uh, that's pretty clear from the Damascus scroll, uh, but a sub-Sadducee group, um, or Tzidukim in Hebrew. And so if they were this sub-Sadducee group, we know even more about them. But they essentially rejected the oral tradition altogether. They read the Torah at face value. They had their own form. We, have, we believe the Torah is cryptic and have kind of these rules for deciphering the Torah. They also believe the Torah was cryptic because a read in the Hebrew makes it clear that it is. Um, it's clearly written in code, but they had a different way of deciphering the code. Um, somewhat of a different system for deciphering the code. And that led to a whole different series of laws. Yes? Is that the group that the 19th blessing to the Amida was added for? That's an excellent question. Probably not. The 19th blessing of the Amida was added for Minim. Minim are, is probably best translated as heretics. Okay. Um, umbrella term. It's an umbrella, but it is for, it is la Malshinim, it is for the, um, for the heretics who um, tell on us to the Romans, who kind of go to the Romans to complain about it. Um, and they were probably what's called today proto-Christians. Um, in other words, they were, before Christianity became an organized structured religion, there were, we think at the time, many different groups kind of that had Christian-like beliefs, um, kind of small sects. Uh, that eventually became either one of them grew to become Christianity or maybe multiple of them. Um, they were probably the meaning that the, or the, that the 19th blessing was written for. Okay, um, so, but we do other things for the Tzidukim for, um, you know, to counter the um, Tzidukim Sadducees. Most notably, they wouldn't eat anything hot on Shabbat. And so our eating of hot food on Shabbat, Chalant for Ashkenazim, Mohamed for the Sephardim, um, is a response to their um, prohibition of not eating hot things and shit. Um, so anyway, so, so based on that, regardless, everyone agrees that this was a break-off sect or cult of Jews who lived kind of as a, in Qumran, as a kind of their own group, had their own version of Judaism away from the mainstream. So it doesn't really tell us that much about ma mainstream Judaism. It tells us a lot more about this sect than it does about mainstream Judaism. It's still a fascinating find. Um, and the Dead Sea Scrolls are widely considered the most important, or one of the most important <coughs> archaeological finds ever. Um, prior to the find, there was virtually no Second Temple era records. They found Second Temple era pottery and coins and even things engraved, engraved pottery, but they or engraved stone, but they never found actual 
papyrus or, or parchment scrolls. Uh, this was the first one. We have found others since. We found in Masada, we found in some other places. The Dead Sea Scrolls really give us a window into this long lost period of history of which we have very, good le very little good records because it's so far away. And while it's still a, it's a fringe view, it's a view of a fringe group, but it's still a view. Um, it does amazingly show us the books of Tanakh as we have them today were the same as they were 2,000 years ago. Um, there was this theory in the 19th century among 19th century historians, secular historians, who a big part of their work was to debunk the uh, beliefs of early beliefs of Judaism and Christianity. Um, to uh, that was a big part of the work. That was kind of the, their agenda. Uh, that claimed that you know the Bible as we know it wasn't put together until you know the late first century. Um, that's clearly not the case. We see that from the Dead Sea Scrolls, right? They were clearly it was clearly there beforehand. Um, it shows that many of the stories and laws um, we knew from that time were accurate. Um, we found tefillin and mezuzahs. It shows that the Jews were wearing tefillin back then. Jews were putting up mezuzahs as we do today. Even though tefillin and mezuzahs are only mentioned in passing in the written Torah, without any detail of what they looked like, um, the fact that tefillin had four boxes, um, and, you know, the details, they were square. Um, we would, but we see that in Second Temple period, they were putting on tefillin. Even a fringe group was putting on tefillin um, and had mezuzahs. Uh, unless, again, we don't know exactly who came, what came from whom. Um, did everything come from the fringe group? Did other Jews fleeing persecution also hide their things in caves nearby? It, it's hard to know. We, we don't really know. And so it definitely serves as the strongest evidence we have for Second Temple era Judaism. Some of it was to hide. In other words, the seven scrolls in cave one were probably to preserve it long term. The fragments of scrolls in cave four were probably a library. Uh, cave four is right next to Qumran. Um, it's right there in the cliffs overlooking Qumran. It was probably a library that they used. And that's why it wasn't preserved at all. It kind of just ended up fragments because they probably weren't all well preserved, you know, kind of covered in cloth, put inside jugs. Um, and that's why it didn't survive. And we just get, ended up with fragments. Uh, we know people lived in caves during times of persecution or war um, to hide. So, I mean, it, we, we, it's hard to know. It's really hard to know. Now, there are some discrepancies between these scrolls and our Tanakh. Definitely many of the laws and beliefs are not the same as our laws and beliefs that we have today. Um, from the records, as we've mentioned, it's clear that they were a fringe group. So we really cannot bring any evidence for what we see there, for what normative Judaism was like at the time. Yet it does make you wonder, have we preserved Judaism accurately? Maybe we got it wrong. Maybe the scripture should have been a little different. Maybe they had it right. They had the right scripture. So the Talmud tells us about a debate between the sage Rabbi Yossi and the rest of the sages over the tzitz. The tzitz was the golden plate that the high priest wore in the temple on his forehead, mentioned in the Torah. And the Torah tells us that on the tzitz was engraved, on this golden plate, was engraved the words Kodesh Lahashem, holy for God. 
The sages Rabbi and Rabbi Yossi, they lived a couple decades after the destruction of the temple. And the sages believed that the, the words Kodesh Lahashem, holy for God, was written on two lines, where the words holy for was written underneath, and then God, and then God was written on top. So it was read kind of upwards. The um, Rabbi Yossi says, no, it was actually written on one line. How does he know that? Rabbi Yossi says, well, he was in Rome. And in Rome was where they took all the kind of treasures of the temple. He got to see the original tzitz. He saw the original plate, golden plate, worn by the high priest. Again, he lives, lives, lived um, a couple decades after the destruction of the temple, probably about uh, six, seven decades after the destruction. Um, he saw that he saw it, he said it's on one line. So commentaries ask, well, if Rabbi Yossi saw it, and the sages, the rest of the sages were just, you know, kind of their belief was based on hearsay, based on what their teachers had taught them. But now they have evidence someone has actually seen, and assuming Rabbi Yossi was not lying, someone has actually seen the original tzitz. Why didn't they accept what he had seen? There's some that believe that the real stuff was so, and what we see in Rome was a fake. So commentaries explain that seeing the sages said, we were taught by our teachers, who were taught by their teachers, it was only a few decades after the destruction, that the tzitz that they had seen was on two lines. Rabbi Yossi saw a tzitz, a golden plate with the words Kodesh Hashem engraved in Rome. But what he saw was with no context. The Romans may claim it's from the treasures of the temple. Likely, if it has God's name written, Kodesh Hashem, with God's name written in Hebrew, it's clearly from the temple. But was it the original? Was it a copy? Was it a fake? There's no context. How do you know? So... We know it from uh, Titus's uh, gate. So, so the right, so, so we don't know. So, therefore, if when the sages were given this choice to follow someone's testimony of what they had seen but without context, or what they had been taught by their teachers, they chose to go with their tradition. It was more accurate and more believable than the fact that someone saw it. And this is very important. This goes for all archaeological discoveries. Um, the same is for Titus's. And we once did a class on the menorah, what exactly it looked like. And we actually have a picture of the menorah um, that is engraved in Titus's arch. It still stands today in Rome. Um, we have many reasons to believe that that picture of the menorah is inaccurate. Again, is accurate. inaccurate, is not accurate. Again, the, do, did they draw a picture of the real menorah? Did they even have the real menorah in Rome? Right? Those are questions that we don't have clear answers to. We can guess, but it's guessing. And that's the downside with archaeology, archaeological discoveries, and really history in general. Historians, and they don't like when you tell them this, right? Historians tend to have a lot of hints. In other words, they... They have various details, and they try to put together a story the way it happened, but it's guessing. And historians often strongly disagree as to exactly what happened. 
And often new evidence will arise that will totally change the story because they're working with very, very little evidence. The further back you go in history, the less evidence we have. When we try to you know, recreate stories of World War II, historians debate what happened, or even more recent events. Trying to create events that happened hundreds of years ago, let alone thousands of years ago, become much, much, much harder because you have very, very few pieces. In the last 200 years, there's been a lot of push on, there's been a lot of um, discoveries in archaeology. People who have done digs and kind of discovered old things, fascinating things that have given us all sorts of windows to all sorts of ancient things. Challenge with archaeology is that you're getting something with very, very little context. Now we could try to create context by looking at the pottery, by looking at the coins, by looking at different things, try to create context. But how do you know? Maybe someone was holding a coin from their ancestor 500 years earlier, or a piece of pottery. How do you know? There's no context to it. In other words, while, while archaeology is fascinating and very helpful in piecing together history, history is not evidence. When we speak of historical evidence, it is not evidence that would ever work in a court. It is not evidence that can ever, almost all historical evidence would not, especially going back hundreds of years, would never be able to prove something beyond reasonable doubt with all the historical evidence that we have because there's so many other possibilities and so many questions that always remain. It never really, they're, they're great stories and historians work hard and they're brilliant in piecing together as it's often described. Um, history or archaeology, putting together a 5,000-piece jigsaw puzzle when you only have 20 pieces. Now, somebody who could do that is brilliant, but what are the chances that they got it right? Or at least all the details right? right? What are the possibilities they got some of it wrong? And even if they found maybe some critical pieces of what they believe to be critical pieces, how do you know? Right? So when it comes to, while well, history is fascinating, and if history is about telling the story and always trying to improve the story, which is what history is, archaeology is great at helping us do that. But proving things for a matter of law and for, for legal purposes based on archaeology is almost impossible. There's a great story they tell, the great medieval scholars, Rashi and Rabbeinu Tam, Rabbi Yaakov, Rabbi Yaakov Rabbeinu Tam, uh, who was actually Rashi's grandson, had a number of very famous debates. But one of their important debates was about the tefillin. Inside a, the tefillin, the boxes that we wear, are four parchments. However, there's a debate between Rashi and Rabbeinu Tam as to what the order of the parchments should be. And this appears to have actually been a much older debate that went on for hundreds of years, and it's based on different readings of the Talmud and readings of the Torah and our old tradition. There was this old debate as to what the order of the portions of the four paragraphs should be. So the story is told that they told Rabbeinu Tam that in Israel they had dug up an ancient pair of tefillin, and the parchments in the tefillin were in the order that Ra or the other opinion, the Rashi opinion, against his opinion. And so he retorted, how do you know that those were kosher tefillin? To the contrary, maybe they were buried because they weren't kosher, because they were out of order. How 
Now, is it more likely that they were kosher? Probably. But, you know, how many, why would someone make non-kosher tefillin? But, can you, is it definitive with beyond doubt? No. Can you say with certainty they were kosher tefillin? How do you know? How do you know whose they were? Maybe it was some sectarian individual. Maybe it was a fringe group. How do you know who had them? Right? So there's always the context questions that any archaeological dig asks that is very, very hard to answer. So for that reason, Judaism does not rely on archaeology or on history to determine laws because no archaeological claim can ever be proven beyond doubt in a court of law. It would never pass muster um, for a jury. Rather, we rely on the validity of our tradition the testimony that was handed down from generation to generation. Archaeology is fascinating, and it perhaps adds perspective to our understanding. But archaeology could only help tell a story. It can never impact our beliefs and our laws. It is never definitive enough to really make an impact. So while Dead Sea Scrolls are fascinating, they're not crucial to Judaism, and neither will any other archaeological find that we find ever be, because how will you know? How do you know the context of it? Yes. Um, when I went to Israel one day on a tour, they let us do an archaeological tour. Yes. And um, it was apparently from an earthquake. They had unearthed all the pottery and dishes, you know, and you could dig around. And they were really only interested in keeping, if you found a pottery and it had a neck or something, they said, if you find a piece of pottery, it is possible to interpret where that little tiny piece of pottery belongs in all the thousands of fragments. And I think that's a small example right. of why archaeological It's fascinating, sure. but it's not definitive. No, and even the neck. Right. The, the necks in, in, a, in an earthquake or something, the necks tend to break the same way. So even if you think you can match the neck to the base or whatever, that may not be true. Right. Interesting. <laughs> so Judaism is really the result of thousands of years of tradition, or what we call in Hebrew Mesorah, that's been handed down from generation to generation. Yes, have the, there been changes over the years? Yes, there's been, over the years, Judaism has evolved, and we once had a class on how Judaism evolved, and we once had a, a course on it. However, our Mesorah, our tradition, is the most accurate and true Judaism that we have. If we believe that God controls our universe, then we have to believe that he would ensure that the Torah he gave us, the commandments he gave us, and the beliefs will remain intact. And that's why traditional Jews might be fascinated by the, by the Dead Sea Scrolls and other archaeological findings, but we don't see them as central to our beliefs, neither proving them nor disproving them. They don't have that much importance. But perhaps more importantly, most archaeological finds are finds of ancient groups that have long gone. We can find you know, you know, ancient Roman finds or ancient Greek finds or finds from the ancient Egyptians, from all sorts of ancient peoples that have long disappeared, that are long gone, that we no longer know who they were, how they lived we're independently. We no longer know who they were how they lived, what their beliefs were, what their rules were. We don't know anything about them. And so we find these fascinating archaeological finds that tell us the story. But Jews are not a dead people. Jews are alive. Judaism are alive. 
We are a continuous people that have continued for thousands of years. And we have records for thousands of years. We have books that have been written for thousands of years. We know who the leaders in, of every generation of Jewish communities were. The debates, where we lived, how we lived. The Torah and Judaism is a living document that we've lived by for thousands of years. So while the Dead Sea Scrolls are fascinating, they tell the story of a dead people, of people who once were, once existed. But we still exist. We're alive people. So while we might be interested by things that kind of you know, are interesting to Judaism or tell us all the details about Judaism, we always have to interpret them within the context of our current living people and our people of how we are today.